It was a tight race between Democrats and Republicans on November 3rd, but the incumbent party won a landslide. Hi, I'm Philip Blumel. Welcome to No Uncertain Terms, the official podcast of the Tournaments Movement for the week of November 23rd, 2020. Your sanctuary from partisan politics. The most recent polling data from October 2020 suggests that only 19% of Americans approve of the way the U.S. Congress is handling its job. Then, days later, after the polling, 95% of House incumbents running for their own seat were re-elected to the U.S. Congress. Here to discuss this phenomena, as well as other congressional term limits news, is Nick Tombalides, Executive Director of U.S. Term Limits. Hey, Nick. Bonjour. <laughs> okay, the elections. With 95% of the House incumbents running for their own seat were reelected. That is almost precisely in line with the number we've seen since around 1970 for most of our lives. Nothing has changed. Even in this mammoth election, and I know sometimes, a lot of times, people will tell us that this is caused by um, apathy, that we hate Congress, but we re-elect Congress. It's voter apathy. Well, you can't blame voter apathy this time around. We had massive voter turnout. No. uh, You know, Ben Franklin said that there were two certainties in life, death and taxes. I think Mm -hmm. he was wrong. There are three, death, taxes, and incumbents getting re-elected. No kidding. It's all about the money and it's all about the incumbency incumbents have innumerable innumerable advantages at the ballot box the best of which is their financial advantage they are able to outraise challengers about nine to one in terms of the dollars that they can rake in from special interest PACs who want favors and bailouts and protection from that congress from the federal government Um, it's a symbiotic relationship They have advantages the challengers simply do not have, and for as long as that persists, for as long as there are no term limits on Congress, trends like this will continue. Sure. And incumbents tend to outspend their challengers by four to five times. I mean, it's it's really lopsided, which is why our election returns are so lopsided. And what I find fascinating when I bring this up is that incumbents, as we just mentioned, win about 95% of the time when running for their own seat in the U.S. House. The Center for Responsive Politics notes that the top spender wins in a race in the U.S. House over 90% of the time. And of course, those top spenders are generally the incumbents. That's why you have that correlation. And another over 90% correlation is that roughly 90% of PAC money flows to incumbents rather than challengers. Now, of course, all these numbers are highly correlated and interconnected. And that's not even discussing the institutional advantages of incumbency, right? Right. Incumbents are able to create red tape, and then through constituent service, they can take credit for getting rid of it. Incumbents are able to deputize their staff into full-time media public relations businesses. They are able to utilize the mainstream media to basically run their campaigns free of charge by putting every single initiative they have into the newspaper and on TV. You had noted, I think, that the number of uncontested races this year is somewhat down, but it's really under-contested races that we're worried about. In any given election cycle, what you see is about 90% of the incumbents 
are under contested, meaning they might have a challenger, but it's someone who is not very credible, who might not have the type of background to run a serious congressional campaign, and most certainly doesn't have the fundraising prowess to run a serious challenge against an incumbent. So you might say around 90% of incumbents, they might not be running unopposed, but they are financially unopposed. Right. They're not running unopposed. That's uh, something that's changed over the years since you and I have been working on this project, because this time around, with this high turnout and such a focus on this election, we only had 27 uncontested seats in the U.S. House. And you can compare that to 41 in 2018 and 61 in 2016. So it's dramatically less. So this idea that it's just apathy just isn't the case. We have a lot more challenges to incumbents this time, but the incumbents won the same number of times because those challenges failed and failed miserably. Yeah. And um, I was doing a little bit of research the other day, and I found uh, quite the historical nugget. I realized that re-election rates for incumbents have been very, very high for basically all of American history. But we haven't always had career politicians. So how do you reconcile that? What is the difference between then and now? The reason is for the first hundred plus years of our history, incumbents rarely ran for re-election. Or if they ran for re-election, they might only seek one additional term. You know, the average tenure for a member of the U.S. House didn't rise above four years until the year 1900. We routinely had 50% turnover in the U.S. House. Now I think the turnover rate is in the mid-teens. So incumbents are, not only are they more powerful than ever at the margins, but they are just simply refusing to go away. Right. And because their tenure has become so long, it's become a disease in our body politic. Because when they run for office, it, they automatically win every re-election. And then, of course, the longer you're in there, the more power you have because it's a, a seniority-based system. And all of the key chairmen of all the committees that actually decide what bills are going to be discussed and voted on, those are people that have been there forever and been playing the game. It's not the newbies that come in with fresh ideas or want to change the system or, or somehow improve things or change things. They are far away from the levers of power. No, they want careers in politics, or more accurately, they need a career in politics, because if you do not stay in Congress for a long time, you don't have any clout. The only way to amass power and clout in Washington is through seniority. That's simply the system we have. It affects who gets appointed to committees. Um, it affects who gets to be in leadership. You don't get to be in leadership in your first term. That's just not how it works. Nope. And so pretty much if you run for Congress— and want to be successful in any way, either to make changes or just to line your pockets, you have to go in there and be totally okay with the idea that you're going to be there for decades. That is to say, you are entering the Congress with the idea of being a career politician. Most of us who recognize the way the system works know we're not going to be anywhere near the levers of power. We're not going to have any power for so long. We're not going to do that. The cost, the toll on our families and everything else just to go in to bide our time forever, that's not a deal that most goal-oriented, serious people are willing to make if their goal is to improve things. That's right. So they just choose not to run at all, and our problems fester and get worse. So for all of the bombast about the 2020 elections, we saw the same phenomena we always see, the same Congress getting reelected. Hello, this is Scott Tillman, the National Field Director with U.S. Term Limits. Thank you for all your help this last cycle. In 2021, we'll have more pledge signers in Congress 
than ever before, over 90 members. In January, new resolutions will be introduced in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. We present each pledge signer with a plaque to remind them of their commitment to their voters in their term limits pledge. We'll be working over the next several months to present congressional members with these plaques. We also present plaques to state legislators who signed the pledge to support term limits with state resolutions. When constituents are with us to present the plaque, it helps to bolster the legislators' commitment to term limits, and legislators love to get their picture taken with constituents accepting the plaque. If you're willing to help us present plaques to legislators, please reach out to us on Facebook, or you can call or text us at 321 321- Three four five seven four five five. That's three two one three four five seven four five five. Or email us at pledges at termlimits.com. P L E D G E S at termlimits.com. Thank you. U.S. Term Limits is run by a board of directors and maintains a staff of about a dozen or two people at any given time. This group devises, monitors, and tweaks our strategies to impose term limits on the U.S. Congress via two primary routes. One, a constitutional amendment via Congress. Or two, a constitutional amendment via the states at an amendment-proposing convention. We're making real progress, and the 2020 elections were further evidence of this. But this isn't happening because of the efforts of a couple dozen people. Any successful strategy will require citizen engagement and activism. Fortunately, the term limits movement is blessed with activists like Janet Curran of Pennsylvania. We spoke to Janet last week. Hey, Janet. How's it going? Hi, Phil. How are you? Very good. Uh, You caught my eye, literally, from a photo that I was forwarded of you holding a term limit Congress sign on a street corner. Where was that taken and uh, what prompted you to do that? That was in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, and I have been talking about term limits, kind of complaining that we don't have term limits for a very long time, and decided that it's time to do something. So I've been talking to friends and acquaintances and neighbors, and uh, they're all for it. And we went a couple of times to stand on the corner, downtown Kennett Square. There were four of us the last time we went, one on each corner, and... um, we got lots of uh, replies by horns beeping and thumbs up and things like that. So people who walk by asking questions. Sure. Is this in Pennsylvania? Is that where that is? Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. It's southeast of Philadelphia. Southeast almost, of Philadelphia. Almost in Delaware. Okay. So you get a lot of good reaction. Now, you've done this. You mentioned you did it a couple times. How many people usually come with you? Well, we're starting to we're going to build up. We, only, we had four was the most, but we want to get more. Um, and go in different parts of the town or pick the next town over, uh, but we might have to get permission. They have a lot of Westchester, Pennsylvania. It's a bigger town. It's the county seat, and they have a lot of um, different people standing at the near the courthouse, the main thoroughfare with signs for all kinds of things, but we'd like to be able to do that next time. Okay. Bigger is better, of course, but I think four people, if that's what you got, is effective, right? You have four corners at a, at a big intersection, and... and There's, uh, there was no question it was effective. Yeah. So no question it was effective, and we we really would like to get a, a big bigger crowd, and we yeah. will. So where where did you get the signs? Um, got the signs from um, the man in Pennsylvania who was the director of the uh, lead for the Pennsylvania term limits. Yep. Is that is yeah. that uh, Ken Quinn? Ken Quinn. I asked Ken Quinn for more, and he sent him. So I 
pass them out. People have been putting them all around the different towns in PA, and then we hold them up for the um, these little street corner exhibitions. <laughs> right. Um, that's great. Uh, what other kind of activism have you done on this issue? I think you've done more than just holding the street signs, right? We also, I, I was at my, my husband and I actually, I took the morning, he took the afternoon, and we had a table, a term limits table um, at our precinct for this year's election on November 3rd. Okay. And we were right when they come out the door after they voted, uh, we had a table and we handed out material. Oh, that's great. And talked to people about great. it. Great. One man actually came out from voting, saw our table, and said, it's so good. To, this is something positive. This is a good positive. He yeah. Said. This is a good positive note after voting, is what he said. <laughs> <laughs> good. Good. I and love it. Because, yeah. I think it's, too, it's effective. The, I guess the power in it is not just the thing itself. I mean, showing the sign on the street corner and having someone wave back is a nice, positive local interaction. But you have to wonder, like, what, what does it accomplish? But I think it actually accomplishes a lot. Politicians know, they know, they've seen polling, they know that like 80% of the public are for this. And it's Democrats, Republicans, and Independents. They know that people are for it. But they also know that unless the public is paying attention or activated somehow, that they can sort of ignore it. Absolutely. And so when you're holding a sign on the street corner, you're showing them that the public is activated and is paying attention. So whatever else is going on in your state at that particular time involving tournaments is amplified by having people show support for it, like what you're doing. So why is this issue important to you? What made you want to get directly involved in the issue of term limits? Because I see what is going on in Washington, and I see that nothing is getting done. Look at the past four years. I think maybe one thing was passed, mm -hmm. you know, one or two things. One was the, the trade deal, but mm -hmm. not a lot gets done because this year these four years were different i realized mm -hmm. that but they want to it seems like they're in there so long they want to avoid an issue that needs to be considered because it might threaten their job for life is which what they want they want to get voted in again right. so they they kind of gear their vote to what they think people want so they could get voted in again and i would like to see they work for us we don't work for them that's right that's right so you say it gives them some courage when a lifetime in that position is not an option, it gives them some courage because they don't have to, they're not afraid of losing that position so much. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, a, that's a really good point. Love to see re political courage restored. Yes. More fallout from the election involves all the jockeying for position in the new upcoming Congress. Largely the same people as we discussed, but that's going on right now. Number one thing for the new House is who's going to be the new speaker. And in this case, much like most of the Congress, it's going to be the old speaker, Nancy Pelosi. Or so she's received the nomination, I think the official votes in January. Now, this is interesting because she actually had a fight on her hands to become speaker in 2018 when the Democrats took power of the, the House again. And she had to make a promise to over a dozen younger members of her party that she would only serve two more terms, four years, as speaker. And then she would basically self-limit herself um, if they would support her back then. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. I think the Who had it right when they said we won't get fooled again. Um, except in the case of Nancy Pelosi, we just keep getting fooled repeatedly, <laughs> yeah. over and over again. We are we've been fooled again and again and again. 
Right. Um, yeah, she cut this deal two years ago where she agreed to limit herself to just two more terms. So she says she will be leaving in 2022. Yeah. Then again, this is Nancy Pelosi we're talking about. Her promises are about as valuable as an IOU from Bernie Madoff. <laughs> um, so, you know, pardon my skepticism. Yeah. On the plus side of this, you only get two more years of Pelosi. But on the downside, you get two more years of Pelosi. Yeah. It's a cringeworthy <laughs> situation either way. Before we give her too much credit for even making the tournament's promise, uh, she's 80 years old and she's running up against a retirement tournament, in any case, uh, her own. Beyond that, she didn't just promise that she was going to self-limit for four years. The deal that she made with those uh, young Democratic legislators was that she was going to allow a caucus vote on proposed tournaments for the top three Democratic leaders. Well, guess what? That vote was never held. Right. That never materialized. It was just mysteriously scrapped. Yeah. Yep. The other two House leaders said, no way, we're not doing it. And Pelosi caved and the caucus caved. And, and so uh, things went on. She is apparently going to live up to her uh, four-year self-limit. But she did not actually live up to her deal to her own caucus and the younger members in it. Now, many of those members got reelected this time, and they didn't put up a fight against Pelosi. But I think part of her announcing last week that she was going to live up to her self-limit was part of making sure that she didn't have too many defectors in January when they have the official vote, because she can't afford too many defectors. No, she cannot. And you have to think for some of these members who are thinking maybe it's time for a change in leadership, they're worried about retaliation from Nancy Pelosi. That's right. If it publicly gets out there that they voted against her uh, right. because she has the power to rip them off the committee that they're on and put them on the back bench uh, and basically cost them their seat. She's that powerful because it's a top-down leadership structure in Washington, D.C. You cross Nancy Pelosi at your own peril. I do agree with some of what you said, though. I think she's getting up there in age, um, making the voluntary promise. It's kind of like making a virtue out of necessity right. in a way. Right. Yeah, I had like a 94-year-old congressman come up to me once and say, oh, I'm for term limits. And I'm thinking, do you really have much of a choice? <laughs> right. I know. I know. It's like a, a eunuch taking a vow of chastity. It's like, OK. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In your state, Pennsylvania, we saw some high-level support of the tournaments convention idea specifically um, from some political giants of Pennsylvania. What was that about, and how did you hear about that, by the way? That was Ed Rendell, the former Democratic governor mm -hmm. of Pennsylvania, and I believe he was the lead of Democratic um, National Committee chair for a while. And then he worked with Senator Toomey, mm -hmm. who is a Republican senator still in office. He is going to, um, when he's done with his term now, he, he said he's done because he, one reason is he believes in term limits. <laughs> the two of them together are all for term limits. For all these reasons we've been talking about, they feel the same way. And they, it was in the newspaper. It was on, yeah, very excited. And I hope to tap into them down the road here and talk to them and see what, how, they, how else they can help or how we can help them get it done. Right. Now you can bet that everybody in the Capitol saw that. I mean, it was like an explosion for the political class. These big shots coming out in the Philadelphia Inquirer in a joint article coming out specifically for the tournaments convention and for tournaments in general. And then when they see public support for it, you know, this has a giant impact on the way that these politicians view the issue. Like I said, they know we're for it, but they're only going to take action on it if they're being watched because in their hearts, they don't like it. Right. 
That's why we're trying to get people to call their state legislatures, the senators and reps, and tell them to pass the term limits resolution. Either email them or call them. If you want me to go on the call with you, I will. Um, I know that's the main thing. So we're really um, trying to get them to do that so we can get that passed in Pennsylvania. Is there anything that you'd like to tell or ask us? I want to know what is the best way to get people involved. Mm -hmm. People, they really want to know how to get involved. And I know they can go to the website, but Mm -hmm. more than just calling, what what else can people do? And how can we get, what's the best way to move them to do it? Okay. Well, the, the the things that we've seen that we think are most effective and that people are most willing to do include, one is making those calls. Another is what you're doing, tabling, and when you're doing that, also collecting um, contact information. Those two things are very important. We also maintain a page on our website, turnlimits.com. It's under the Take Action tab that when you pull it down, it allows you to put in your address, and then it gives you the opportunity to send a message to your legislators asking them to co-sponsor and vote for a term limits resolution in the legislature. Perfect. That makes it's it easy tool. for people. Right. And that so, makes it easy for people. So you can send it to all your network, right? And that's a good one. So so the website's very important, not just to sign up and get on our list, although I think that's a good thing too, but there's tools on there. And that's, I think, one of the best ones for what you're talking about. Then, of course, there's letters to the editor. Um, showing up at political events, wherever a politician's going to be, and either during a Q&A session or even just going up to them privately and say, hey, you know, have you signed the term limits pledge? They know about it. Okay. They've all received it. They get calls about it. We have staffers that make those calls. Um, those calls are effective when there's a lot of activists asking them the same question out in the field. And then when they get our call, they say, oh, yeah, I'll be happy to sign that. Uh, so what you're doing is so vital to make the work that our staff does, you know, work. Other little things, liking us on Facebook and, of course, sharing those memes and um, action items we send out. Another thing, too, is that anyone that's a member of local groups, and it can be a political group, Democrat or Republican, you know, we don't care about that, uh, or civic groups like the Rotary or anything else. If anyone's looking for a speaker, we can provide us a term limit speaker. Perfect. Uh, One last thing I threw out there, Janet is February 27th is Tournaments Day. And that's a day that we want everyone in America we can get hold of to do exactly what you do. Go out on a street corner, I don't know, wear a t-shirt or a lapel pin or put a sign in your yard. In some way, some simple way, but some public way, show support for this idea on that day. And we'd like to see this turn into almost a nationwide annual rally. Not one where everybody gets in buses and goes to Washington, D.C., but one where we put a sign on your yard and then go to work that day, you know, something that regular people could do. And I see that you're out there already doing it, and I really want to commend you. Thank you very much. This project will not be successful without people like you. It's so, so important. And more and more people, I just find more and more people say, hey, you know, I've been talking to you about that. I, I'm, I want to get involved mm-hmm. now. I'm ready. I don't know what all of a sudden prompted them, maybe everything that just went, went on in D.C., but they... They are ready. Mm-hmm. They are ready to do whatever they have to do. So okay. um, February 27th, keep that in mind. Term limits day. Perfect. And if you have an event going on, Janet, let us know, and we'll help you get to people in uh, your area that might want to participate that you might not know. So we try to help out the activists on the ground. We can't do it without you. Thank you very much, Janet, for spending this time with me. You're welcome. My pleasure. Lastly, we saw last week House Budget Chairman John Yarmuth of Kentucky 
make some noise about repealing an unusual term limit that exists currently on the House Budget Committee. Since 1974, there's been a changing, ever-weakening term limit on this committee. And when it started out in 1974, House lawmakers were limited to two budget panel terms out of five successive Congresses. And then over the years, in 1979, it went to three terms. And then in 1995, it went to four terms. Four out of any six. Out of any six, right. right. And then ultimately, they, they scrapped it. They scrapped the rule for the Congress as a whole, but the Democrats kept it. And he's trying to change that. They have a caucus rule, and it's no more than three terms in any five Congresses, right? Right. That's not to be confused with the Republican rule that says you can't be chairman of a committee for more than three consecutive terms. Right. That's different. Um, of course, it's framed as, we can't afford to lose institutional knowledge. <laughs> right. We hear this about term limits all the time, and it's obviously a very arrogant point of view. They will claim that the 535 philosopher kings in Washington who've racked up damn near $30 trillion in debt are the only people smart enough to run the country. That itself is pretty arrogant. But this, what this guy is doing is like supersized arrogance. What this guy is saying is not only are the 535 politicians in D.C. the only smart and gifted people in the whole country and the rest of us are just a bunch of, you know, hillbilly rubes. But within that 535 that he's saying there are a dozen or so extra smart philosopher king elites that America simply cannot live without. Yes, Solon's, because he doesn't just oppose term limits on Congress, he opposes term limits on committees. He thinks Congress will collapse if younger congressmen are allowed to do a little bit more than get coffee and shine shoes. Right. So this idea of institutional knowledge, we're talking about the U.S. House here, um, of which the leadership are all about 80 years old, in which the average member is in their late 60s. There is institutional knowledge in this body like no other. And its results have been abominable. It's a pile of crap. <laughs> That's clearly, that is really it's not a... It's a dumpster fire. <laughs> the only consideration here. Look at it, people. Here. Come on. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? So, all right. So this, the fact that there is a limit on the term length of the House budget chairman is going to be that final little change that really moves this institutional knowledge into its perfect form. It, yes, in its, in its highest form. It's like a, <laughs> a, a Pokemon that is evolving to its highest. So in typical corrupt Beltway media fashion, though, this story about this uh, change, this abolition of the committee term limits, didn't have a single quote from anybody on the pro-term limits side of the aisle. Just endless, self-serving comments from legislators. That had looked at the issue very closely and decided that, yeah, you know, we really should be able to keep our seats. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there was one guy, I think he was a professor uh, somewhere who he was in the article, and he said, oh, this is a fabulous idea because it's going to make for a much stronger committee. And I'm thinking to myself, a stronger committee? I don't know if I want my politicians being stronger. That's more of like an adjective, a phrase that you use to describe yourself if you're a politician in a place like North Korea or Russia, how about a more capable committee? 
How about a better committee? How about more honest and principled committee instead of stronger? And you know what? These rules, of course, they're, they're set by the very politicians who are affected. They have more holes than Swiss cheese. They can be added and taken away whenever members of Congress feel like it. Right. The decision on this has probably already been made, but what we had read is in roll call, that's where this article is from, these meetings are not public, and so we don't have the answer yet, and roll call or anyone else has not reported on it to our knowledge. So we'll let you know the way it worked out. One way or another, it's a small, small change, but it is, I think, illustrative of how much people in power want to keep power and that any efforts, any small efforts to try to limit it are on the chopping block when they have their way. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of No Uncertain Terms. All eyes are on Georgia, where two runoff elections in January will decide which party controls the U.S. Senate. But term limits are also on the ballot. It turns out that both runoffs feature one U.S. term limits pledge signer and one U.S. term limits pledge refuser. Oddly, it's the two incumbents, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, who have signed the pledge, which commits them to co-sponsoring and voting for the Congressional Term Limits Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Their opponents, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, have so far declined to sign the pledge. This week's action item is for Georgians only. Please, if you live in Georgia, email messages to all four of these candidates. Two of them should get thank yous for signing the pledge, reminding them of their commitment in case they win. Two of them should get friendly encouragement from you to sign the pledge. You can do this at turnlimits.com slash GASenate. It'll take you two minutes. Your party registration is not important here. It doesn't matter who you're voting for. Go to turnlimits.com slash GASenate and send all four candidates a pro turnlimits message. Thank you. We'll be back next week. The revolution isn't being televised. Fortunately, you have the No Uncertain Terms podcast. U.S.T.L. Yeah.